Welcome to Nest Church, and thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this word blesses you today. For more information, visit nestchurch.com. We hope to see you soon. And remember, you are So today, um, we have an amazing opportunity today, and if you have your Bible, go ahead and do this with me. Open up to the letter, to the book or the epistle, however you want to call it, of Colossians. It's in the New Testament, so go towards the end of the Bible, and you will find Colossians, and it's sandwiched right in between uh, Philippians and 1 Thessalonians, and you'll find a small little letter written by Paul. Um, later on, it turns into four chapters, though Paul doesn't write it as we know in chapters and verses. And this four-chapter letter is sandwiched right there, but I believe it has so much good stuff for us to learn and grow in. Amen? Now, when I look at the book of Colossians, I think it's a very important book for many reasons. The, the, the book of Colossians, and, the, and the, it's written to a church, the church of Colossae, and you're going to hear me mention them a lot because what I want to do in the next weeks to come is to speak from the author, from the heart of the author, as he's writing from the heart of God, to the people that he's writing to in this town called uh, Colossae. And um, I could look at this Colossae and I could say that they're very similar um, to you and I. They're similar to Nest Church, but yet also very different. Very different in their age. Not necessarily how old they are, but you're gonna hear me say this again later on, but basically, and how long they've uh, been saved um, and how long that they've been operating as a church in that region of Colossae. But very similar, that's their difference, but very similar because just like Nest Church or any local church, they too are facing problems. They too are facing attacks. They too are facing personal things that within a church we all face. How many of you face personal things? All right, you scared me there for a moment. I was like, I have a perfect church. All right, but we all have personal issues and problems. Personal, and then we have collectively, together, we get our issues and we have our problems, and it's no different. It's always happened. I love when people complain to me about Nest Church, and they say, oh my God, there's problems in Nest Church. I'm like, I know, you should see Paul's churches. There's always problems. Why? Why are there always problems? Can someone answer to me why there's always problems? Come on. Because I'm in it. You're in it. I'm in it. You're in it. We're in it. And we sometimes, many times, a lot of times, can be problematic. We're problem. We're people with problems. How many people with problems can say amen? All right. But let the Lord deal with those problems. Don't stay there. Let the Lord deal with it. But that's what's going on. It's always been like that. All joking aside, but it's real. This is what's happening here. So we're going to start off and give you kind of an introduction so you can know what's happening um, in Colossae, in this area, in the book of Colossians, and you can learn and you could grow in it. First off, as we read through this book, I want you to know this. Take notes throughout these weeks. Take notes today. You're going to see that Paul identifies himself as the author. Paul is the author of Colossians. Three different times he speaks of himself, he writes about himself, and he describes himself as two things. Number one, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and number two, as a servant of the gospel. I think those are two awesome brands to wear, two awesome names to carry. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, and I'm also a servant of the gospel. I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you can introduce yourself to a crowd of people and say, I 
Say your name. I am a servant of the gospel. How many of you can do that? How many of you can freely give witness as a servant of the gospel? That's what Paul does. As well as that, we see that Paul, he closes his epistle as well. As he closes this letter in Colossians, it's with a handwritten greeting. And it's a characteristic of Paul, and he does this throughout his letter, letter several times. Why am I saying all of this? I'm doing this to show you so that we could start off understanding that Paul is the one who writes this letter. He is the author of this letter. Amen. Last week, as we were here, and we were in our, our, our time of, of, of word, of scripture, and we were studying, and we were uh, doing the water demonstration and all that, I, met, I mentioned the church of Colossae, and I said to you last week that I flirted with, hey, we're going to start a new series next week in the uh, series through the book of Colossians. If you were here, you heard me say that. But when I said that, you heard me share that I, I, I said something like, this was an immature church. How many of you heard me say that? I said the church of Colossae was an immature church. And the reason being that they were immature, it was not because they were a young church. That's not why they were immature. It wasn't necessarily an age, but I'm speaking, as I shared with you a little while ago, in terms of their conversion. They were immature. They were young in the faith, not of age necessarily. Um, the New King James um, commentary says it this way. Just as a child needs proper instruction early in life, so the early believers needed to be set on the proper path with correct teaching. Do you understand what I'm saying? Here's a group in Colossae. They're coming to the Lord. They're growing. They're excited. But guess what happens? They need to be taught correctly. Just like a young child who's in that back room, one of your kids. You can't just let them grow up and do whatever they want. You can't let them just grow up and say whatever they want. You need to teach them what? Emotionally. You need to teach them physically. You need to teach them spiritually. You need to teach them correctly so that those children could grow and become mature adults. Parents, I'm talking to you for a moment. And this is what parent Paul, daddy Paul, apostle Paul, pastor Paul is doing. He's going to write a letter to teach this young church correctly. So Paul writes this letter to deal with doctrinal heresy. Such a strong word, heresy. And it was creeping into this church whom Paul loves, and he has to correct it. So Paul would write this to keep the church of Colossae, what we would call from swerving. In your walk with the Lord, have you ever felt like you've swerved? Have you ever, has this journey felt like a marathon, like you're just running? And sometimes you get tired. How many of you have tripped in this run? Good. We trip in this race. Paul says that I've finished the race. He calls it a race. Why? Because in a race, there's a struggle. In a race, you got to fight your pain of your own body. The Christ Christianity in scripture, as you flip through these pages and you learn and you study, you'll never see that Christianity was meant for it to be easy. Why? Well, we could start with saying the author, the beginner, the leader of it all, his path wasn't easy. It led him to Roman crucifixion. <laughs> so our path 
is not going to be easy. He even warns us, if the world hated me, know this, my followers, it will also hate you. So, so Paul's writing this, and he's trying to get the church from swerving, from going up and down and left and right. Stay focused. Keep on the path. Paul wants to keep them in line, and he wants to keep them focused on what is the main thing. I know that I'm not just talking about a church of 2,000 years ago. I know that we could all say, man, I am like Colossi. I too have swerved, and I've taken my eyes off the main thing. Well, at least I can say that. So I'll be vulnerable today. And I will admit that on this race I have swerved. And there have been moments where I've taken my eyes off of the main thing. How did it do for me? Well, that's a whole other conversation later. Stay on the main thing. So let's talk a little bit about this church that is supposed to stay focused. This church is actually, it's a good, I don't want to bash them. They're actually a, an amazing church. This church is actually truly following Jesus. They're a thriving church. They're a growing church. But, everyone say but. I know because you know with some positive, it's going to have to come some negative. They're a thriving and growing church, but they were threatened. And they were threatened by numerous things that would get them to swerve from what we know and what I've already described as the main thing. In your life, You've walked this walk, you've ran this race. And how many of you in running this race have also been threatened by numerous things that have led you to come off the road and led you to focus on the main thing? You see, we're not different, too different from Colossae. But Paul writes to them and he wants to let them know, hey, church. Everyone say what? Hey, church. Paul's saying, don't swerve. Don't swerve. All, listen to this. All you have is Jesus and all you need is Jesus. Don't swerve. Don't swerve. Jesus is with you. Sometimes we just need someone to come into our lives and say, I don't have the answers to all your questions, but I have this one answer to, that, has, that he can answer all those questions you have. And it's Jesus is with you. Jesus is there. He is present. And that's what he's doing. And that's what he's speaking to the church. He's all you need. How many of you could write that down in your notes? Jesus is all I need. How many of you could write that down today? Amen? I'm going to take this off. Amen. Freedom. Freedom. Sorry, guys. And now we take a moment. Amen. So let's continue this dialogue here. You need a, a, a doctorate just to get this thing off you. Uh, here we go. <clears throat> so Paul wants them to know that. Don't swerve. Let's continue this. All you have is Jesus. All you need is Jesus. But watch this. As he tells them this, very quickly things start to come into the church and they get mixed up with certain things. And because of the things that start to mix up in this church, I want to teach you something. Write some of this down. Because of this church, there would come to be this belief system that would later be known as, many call it today, the Colossians heresy. Write that down. Can you imagine being a church and they name a heresy after you? <laughs> the nest heresy. 
Some 2,000 years later, when you go to seminary school, or you have some sort of theologian teaching you something, or some pastor preaching a message to you, they go back and they quote this phrase, the Colossian heresy, this thing that was found in this church early in Colossae. And here is a mix of different belief systems, and I need you to understand why Paul's writing this. I'm giving you a lot of introduction or framework so you could understand the reason why this letter is written to this church. I hope you learned something today. So the first thing that was mixed in this church was this, Jewish legalism. I'm trying to go slow so you can write notes because you should all write notes in the house of the Lord. Number one, Jewish legalism. Not only did Jewish legalism mix into the church because not only were there Gentiles there, but there was also Jews in this area. Number two, Gnostic mysticism started to grow within the church. Jewish legalism, Gnostic mysticism. And then the third thing is what we would call um, this false doctrine or this false pride. It's religious asceticism. Write down those three things. So number one, Jewish legalism starts to creep in. Let me give you a little bit of a background of what Jewish legalism is. They would do certain things, for example, like this. They would come to the church. People were growing and, and thriving in the church. And then these, these Jews that carried on this tradition from Judaism would come and say, hey, you have to be circumcised. And you have to keep the law of Moses in order to be saved. And they started to like put this pressure on these early converted believers. And what happened was it was a lot for them. And they're like, what do you mean now at this age I have to be circumcised? Now I have to follow the law of Moses? I'm a Gentile. Why should I have to follow? And, and they were very, they're pressuring the church. If you've ever read the letters of Paul, you'll see how Paul had to deal with this a lot in his letters. And he had to always confront Jewish legalism and free people from that. And Paul confronts this many times, not just in Colossians, but if you've ever read his other letters, you'll see that it's there as well. Number one thing that creeps in, not in order or not in importance, but one of the first things is also Jewish legalism. Number two, Gnostic mysticism. Now this one was big too in the church of Colossae. There was a belief system that comes from late um, Judaism and early Christianity, and they mixed them together. And part of what they believed was that everything spiritual was good and everything material is evil. And they began to share that and teach that. So look what that leads to thinking. So God, everyone say God. Yeah. So God could not have created the material world because he is good. So why would he create things that are bad in this material world. So they immediately said God is not there. And in there, I don't even want to get into the Gnostic mysticism. They talk about a different being from a different being from a different being. And he's the one that created this material world. But it wasn't God. I mean, it is so anti the word of God. Because the Lord, the scripture says clearly that God spoke into existence. And they began to teach this heresy. This is a legit blatant form of heresy and they would claim that Jesus listen to this was a high being or a higher being but Jesus was not God this is still around actually in local churches he's a higher being but he's not God run from those people they're heretics they denied the deity of Christ 
They said that he wasn't God, that he was just a human being. Listen to what they thought, right? Gnostic mysticism. They believed that deity would come upon Jesus, but then it would leave him. No, Jesus was there from the beginning, is there during the current, and will be there for the forevermore. The deity of his does not come upon him and leave him. And we will see that they even got through the scriptures, not necessarily today, but you'll see that they get into um, angel worship. I know people personally that have gotten deep into angel worship. They've given more attention to angels than they do the very person of Jesus Christ. They, they uplift these angels. They know the name of the angel. The angel appears to them. The angel leaves stuff behind for them. Very, very careful. Very, very dangerous. And that's what they start to do. They get into angel worship rather than keeping the main thing, the main thing. Focus on Jesus. In the Bible, let's just be biblical for a moment. Every time a man got on his face, on his knees to worship an angel, what would the angel tell them? Get up. I'm not the one that you're to worship. We see that in scripture. That the angel had to always teach them that. That is Gnostic mysticism. They got all weird within the church. So they got religious legalism, Gnostic mysticism, which created, I mean, huge heresy in the church of Colossae. And then the third thing is religious asceticism. This is still going on as well. All of these things. Religious asceticism or false discipline or this false pride. These are individuals that come into a body of believers and they think things like this or they say things like this. Oh, if I just deny, if I deny myself from certain pleasures, if I, if I deny myself from things in life, if I just cause myself to suffer, then God will like me more, then God will love me more. Oh, if I just suffer for the Lord, then, then guess what? This will prove my love for him. Really, all of that is just, it's all pride. It's false humility. Because you're speaking about it, you're hurting yourself, you're, you're, you're showing this, this, oh, I'm just a, a servant of God and I'm being tortured for him. Paul says the opposite. He says, count it all joy when you suffer. Those who are stuck with religious asceticism make it a highlight to let everyone know, oh, God loves me so much for sure because look at how much I discipline myself or I suffer for him or I cause myself to detach from certain pleasures and because of that certainly the Lord loves me more. So what happens is all three of these things start to creep into the church. How many of you wish you were in Paul's shoes? So Paul's like, my gosh, if it's not Jewish, if it's not Jewish legalism, if it's not the Gnostic mysticism or the religious asceticism, I mean, there's always something going on and so Apostle Paul has some work to do. He has some things to address in Scripture, just like any pastor would and should. Any good pastor or any good pastor or any pastor with a heart, really, or any person with a heart would and should in their local church address, address the things that will harm the body of Christ, address the things that will come against the teaching of good doctrine. A pastor that leads 
his community has to address some of those things when they come and present themselves. Amen? And that's what Paul is doing. So back to Colossae. Are you guys learning so much so far? Please. It took me a while to get all this information. I just want to make sure that I'm saying it right so you can understand when I say verse 1. All of this is to get to verse 1. Help me get to verse 1. If I, if I just go to verse 1 without you knowing what's going on, now verse 1 gives more meaning because you know everything that's happening in this church. So back to Colossae. Let's talk about Colossae. Number one, number, I don't know what number I'm on. Here it is, ready? Paul never visited Colossae. As we see from scripture and, and, and many uh, uh, biblical teachers, it's hard to prove that Paul ever visited this Colossae church. He did not start the church of Colossae either. He didn't start it. He didn't go to the city. He didn't plant it. But what Paul did do is he went to Ephesus. Ever heard of Ephesus? All of this is modern-day Turkey. For you guys that want to know like where this is at, it's all modern-day Turkey. And he goes to Ephesus, and listen to this. He spends three years in Ephesus. And as he spends three years, so important that you know this, that whole region begins to hear the gospel because Paul is in Ephesus for three years the gospel begins to explode throughout that area. Now, the town of Colossae was in that same region of Ephesus. Colossae was 100 miles from Ephesus. Not that long. And our cars will get there in no time. But in Paul's day, it would take him about three days walking. It would be a three days journey for Paul to walk from Colossae to Ephesus, to the church of the Ephesians. So he's about 100 miles away from Ephesus, this town of Colossae. And this, this town is still the area of what we would know as Asia Minor. This is where Paul did lots of ministry and a lot of church planting, and that's what's happening. And while in Ephesus, it is believed, and now we're going to get to some good stuff, that someone from Colossae came to hear him. He came to hear Paul as he was teaching Everyone should write this name down. If you don't know how to spell it, it's actually in verse 7 of Colossians chapter 1. There was a guy by the name of Epaphras. Everyone say Epaphras. Such a cool name. So Epaphras goes to listen, to hear, and to learn from the apostle Paul who is in Ephesians. And as he goes to hear from him, he, he then packs up all his things and he goes back to Colossae. And as he goes back to Colossae, he goes back a transformed man. I heard from Paul, my life has been rocked by God. And I have a message for all of you. And Epaphras takes the gospel as a transformed man back a hundred miles, three days later to Colossae. As we will consider it today, modern day, what happens to Epaphras is pretty much, he started a Bible study in his home. It began to grow and that's how the church got started. You could find it in verse 7. So if you want to think about Epaphras, think about Epaphras as this. He becomes the founding pastor of the church in Colossae that was made up of Gentile and Jewish believers. The first pastor of Colossae, a man by the name of Epaphras. Everyone with me? Verse 7 and 8 says this. Paul writes, you learned about the good news from Epaphras. He's writing to Colossae, chapter 1, verse 7. You heard of the good news. You heard the gospel from Epaphras. And look what he describes Epaphras as. Epaphras is our beloved co-worker. 
He is Christ's faithful servant, and he is helping us on your behalf. He has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. You see what Paul's doing? He's describing this first pastor, what his heart and his heart for the people of Colossae. How many of you remember the three things that infiltrated the church that caused heresy? Number one, what was it? Jewish legalism. Number two, Gnostic mysticism. Number three, religious asceticism. When all three of these things began to creep up, guess what happens to Epaphras? He says, I got to go back and visit Paul. I don't know how to handle this church. So because of these religious beliefs, he, they begin to infiltrate the church, and Epaphras goes now to visit Paul. But guess where Paul is at sometime later? He's no longer in Ephesians. Want to take a guess where he's at? He's writing Colossae. Where is he when he writes Colossae? He's in Rome, and he's a prisoner in Rome. So Epaphras, I want you to go back to Bible times. I'll just picture all this in your mind. However you see, he's lifting up his little robe. You know, he's, he's running, he gets on a boat, he's, he's sailing, he's trying to get to Rome. He gets to Rome. Paul, Paul Paul's like, Epaphras, Pastor Epaphras, how are you doing? He's like, Pastor Paul, Apostle Paul, how am I doing? So he, this is about 60, 61 AD, the, the time frame of this. So as he goes back to Rome, because Paul's in Rome, and we know that in Rome, Paul... Something very special happens in Rome. Paul writes four epistles. That is Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. If you look at Philemon, we've done a study on Philemon here years ago, and, the, and Ephesians, you'll see that Ephesians and Philemon were written at the same time because, because Paul writes the people that he's with on those two and the same people. So he's writing all of this in, the, in prison in Rome. And that's why uh, now Epaphras goes up to him and he says, Paul, we have some problems. Here are what our beloved brothers and sisters in Colossae. Here's what they're believing. And Paul hears Pastor Epaphras tell him everything that they're believing. So guess what Paul does? I'm going to start writing. And he takes out a paper and the apostle Paul begins to write a letter. Dear Church of Colossae, do I have some things to tell you? And that's what he does. He writes the letter. He gives it to Epaphras. So Epaphras spent some time in Rome. And Epaphras grabs that scroll and takes a journey back to Colossae. He opens it up and says, I got word from the apostle Paul. And now we begin our journey. How many of you are excited for verse 1? Let's go ahead and let's see what happens here. Ready? We're not going to read all of it today. Relax. Here we go. Verse 1. Paul says, this letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ, and from our brother Timothy. So what is Timothy here to Paul? We see that Timothy is his companion, the companion of Paul, appoints even a scribe, not a co-author or author of this, but just someone that would help out and companion him. Verse 2, we're writing to God's holy people in the city of Colossae who are faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Look what he tells them. May God our Father give you grace and peace. Verse 3, we always pray for you, Paul tells them. That's a good thing to hear from Paul. We give thanks to God for you always. Listen to what he's telling them. He says this. We give 
um, prayers up to you always. And we give thanks to God the Father our, of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so in verses 1, 2, and 3, Paul starts this letter in this introduction. And he begins what we would call a personal, personal intercession. And he starts off by saying, I'm praying for you always. So, so here's how I'd like to start in verses 1, 2, and 3. For those of you, or if you know anyone that is interested in ministry, like true ministry, if you're interested in ministry, yes, it's always for the service and for the glory of the Lord, but it's also unto the service of God's people. I love when people in ministry like, well, this is not out about the people. This is about giving God on Like, No, no. Ministry is also about his bride, about his people. If you can't do for the, you can't be there for the people, you're not called for ministry. And, 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 and we see this right off the bat in the first three verses. And we see Paul's heart as a shepherd of his time. What does he tell them to show you that he's a shepherd? That he's there not just for the honor of God, but what does Paul show us that he's there because he loves these people? He says this, I'm not just praying for you. He tells them what? I'm praying for you always. You're always in my heart. Most of you I haven't even met yet, ever. I've never met you in my life, Paul says. But because I've never met you, it doesn't mean that I don't care and love you. Um, I love that our sister came up here and says, I how can someone say they love you when they've never met you if they would only go to your house to truly know who you were? It's because that's what the Spirit does. It unites love for God's people. And that's what Paul writes, though I have not met you, uh, you're always in my heart, Paul says. And his prayer for them was always one of gratitude. If you read through the first three verses, I'm filled with thanksgiving for you. And he says, well, I'm always praying for you. So how many of you want to hear what he's praying? So this is what I'm praying. Verse 4, let's go to it. He says this in verse 4. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all God's people or for all the saints which come from your confident hope, which comes from hope of what God has reserved for you in heaven, which God has laid up for you in heaven. But you have this expectation ever since you first heard the truth of the gospel, the truth of the good news. Verse 6, the same good news that came to you is going out all over the world. Come on. Look what he says. It is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives just as it changed your lives from the day that you first heard and understood the truth about God's wonderful grace. How many of you are the fruit of God's grace? Come on. How many of you are producing fruit in God's grace? Mm, less amens on that one. Here we go. Fruit produces fruit. All right, let's keep going. You learned about the good news from what? Your pastor, Epaphras. You learn the good news from our beloved co-worker. He is faithful in Christ. He's his faithful servant. He's helping us. He's helping me, Paul, your apostle, on your behalf. His ministry is unto the Lord, but it's also on your behalf. He has told us, your pastor has told us about the love for others that the Holy Spirit has given you. He's stirred your heart for others to believe in him. Verses 4 through 8 is the prayer. Verses 4 through 8, you see how Pastor Paul's heart, you see that Paul is thankful for them, for their faith in Jesus. He was happy to see that they were filled. Did anyone catch the three things that Paul says they were filled with? I'll give them to you so you can write them in your notes. 
He was filled with gratitude that the church of Colossae was filled with faith. Everyone say faith. They were filled with hope. Everyone say hope. Mm, don't die on him yet. And he was filled with love. And he was encouraged because he said, church, I write to you because I'm so happy to see that you're filled with faith, that you're filled with hope, and that you're filled with love. I want you to know these three words because these are not loosely, please listen to this, they're not loosely theological ideas that Paul had. But as a Christ follower, faith, hope, and love dominated Paul's thinking. There are people that speak because they are their theological ideas, but they're not dominated in the heart by the truth of those ideas. That's a scary place to be. When you have the knowledge to know what the theological ideas are, but you're not ripped to the heart because they've dominated who you are as a Christ follower. You see the difference? Paul was thankful that their eternity, that their destiny was affected by the truth of the gospel that was brought by one man named Epaphras. And he was so grateful for that. And because of that, this is what's happening. Put your eyes back on verse 6 for me. What's happening because of Epaphras' faithful ministry? What's happening because of the church of Colossae and the words that they've heard from Epaphras? Look at verse 6. It says this. The same good news that came from, to you is going all over the world. Everyone say that. All well, what world is Paul talking about? Well, he's talking about the, the world that is dominated by Roman rule. And, and he says this, it is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. Look what's happening. The truth is changing lives. Just as it changed your life from the day that you first heard and understood the gospel, the truth about God's wonderful grace. So because of all of this, I say this in verse 6, it's bearing fruit all over the world, meaning all over the Roman Empire. It's bearing fruit, Paul says. I want to speak personally to us for a moment. Remember, Paul had never been there to Colossae. He's only heard, as we see this scripture up here, he's only heard about the fruit that is being born in that area because of the faithful seed that is planted by Epaphras. It's landed on fertile soil on good ground. I'm going to ask you guys, as Paul writes this, leave it up there for a moment. How many of you love fresh fruit? You got any fruit eaters in here? I, fresh fruit's the best. If you're in the beach and it's hot, getting some cold watermelon, strawberry, grapes, or other, I found out that those are dirty fruits now, I don't know, whatever, the good fruits. I don't know, what are they called, toxic fruits? I don't know. Get some fruits in you and it's, oh, it's amazing. Who doesn't love some good fresh fruit? Fresh fruit for me is great. Paul says there's fruit and it's growing and it's multiplying. But what's happening is he's writing this letter as the fruit is there. He's writing to fruit. To people that have been fruitful. To people that have hope, faith, and love. But what's infiltrated their lives? Jewish what? Legalism. Religious what? Asceticism. Gnostic what? Mysticism. And, and guess what happens to that fruit? Fruit is good. But fruit out for a while, guess what? It begins to attract bugs. Go ahead and get that fruit that you love and 
Let it sit outside for a while. You're going to start to, in your house, you're going to have fruit flies. And the longer you're going to bring more flies. And, and this is the reality of scripture and the reality of our lives. Write this down. Truth attracts bugs. Fruit attracts bugs. So these truthful believers, these fruitful believers are also attracting bugs to their life. You know how many years we've been in ministry? Anyone want to take a guess? Nest Church, how many years has it been open? For 14 years. Do you know that we've had also attracted bugs? In your life, you've attracted bugs. Truth attracts bugs. When truth begins to impact people's lives, people, everyone say people. Yeah. These three different realms of beliefs, this is heresy, these people, well, we'll say this, not well-meaning people. Let's just be nice today. We'll call them not well-meaning people. They come around fruitful believers and they begin to bug them. It's kind of like when you turn on a light. You ever turn on a light and the bugs go straight to the light? Like the bugs love the light. The bugs run to the light. It's almost like the same thing. There's light, the light shines, it turns on, and it begins to attract all the bugs. And these kind of people, they begin to bug fruitful believers. You've ever had a bug bug you? <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about what these people are doing in Colossae. They come into the, they come into the group. I'm just speaking out of scripture. And these kind of people, they start to say things like this. Hey, you don't have enough. You need more. Hey, come and look into this. Look what I just got. Look what I just got revealed. Look at this. Have you, have you heard this teaching? Look at, and that's what they start to do. They say things like, hey, good start. Good start now that you're born again. But, but let me tell you how to live a deeper, how to, how to live a, in a deeper life, with a, in a deeper walk. Come. Good start, but there's something deeper for you. Sometimes, yeah, there is something, but sometimes all they want is to take you to the deep end. So they come in and they infiltrate the church. I'm going to be very open and honest. You'll notice, give it time. As time passes, these people that lead others astray, listen to this, it, it never goes wrong. It always happens. It's the same formula. If you give it time, these people that lead others astray from where they were learning, from where they were growing, from where they were building family. Well, many of them have gone off the deep end and they no longer walk with them either. Just like, what happened to that following? What happened to your ministry? What? And then you'll start to say, oh, I saw the fruit of the two different camps. It happens, it's always happened in scripture. And that's what Paul's writing to. He's writing to fruitful believers because there were bugs that were getting into the church that were trying to spoil the fruit that God was bearing. So Paul had to address some of these false teachers. And this is some of what is happening in Colossae. And for this reason, because the people are bugs and they are coming and trying to dim out the light, go to verse 9 and 10. Hope you're getting something today. If you've never been bugged by someone, stay in church long enough. There will be a moment where a bug starts to zap in your ear. And then you'll have to question, is this of God or not? What do you think Epaphras heard? I'm just going to speak as a pastor. 
you know these bugs came into his sheep and like, we know more than your pastor Epaphras. And they probably began with the, the very same leadership to bring them off and bring them off from what God wants to do in this family. Watch this, verse nine and 10. Because of what's happening to you in Colossae, because of what's going on, look at verse nine and 10. So we have not stopped, because of everything I just mentioned to you, we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. We ask God to give you, look what Paul says, complete knowledge of his will, to give you spiritual wisdom, to give you understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. What is Paul telling them in verse 9 and 10? Your, the church has been infiltrated. Your mind has been infiltrated. They're trying to bug you out. So what does he say next? So this is what we do. We pray all the time and we ask, you should write this down, that God will give you complete knowledge of his will. Stop for a second, church, and write this down in your notebook, in your smart pad. Write this down. Do you have complete knowledge of God's will? Other translation says, we ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will. What a great prayer to pray from Pastor Paul. This is how we can be fully pleasing to God and how we could have a worthy walk. He says this, be fruitful in every good work, increase in the knowledge of God. You know that Jesus constantly taught that. He taught to be fruitful. He taught to increase in the knowledge of God. For, for note takers in John 15, 7 and 8, I'm doing a reference verse here. In John 15, 7 and 8, Jesus' very own words, you know what he says? If you abide in me and my words, my truth abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. Verse 7 is speaking of increasing in the knowledge of God. Verse 8, by this, my Father who is glorified, that you bear much fruit so that you will be my disciples. This is speaking of fruitful in every good work. Notice verse 9 and 10. We don't have to go back and read it. If you want, you can put it back up on the screen. But verse 9 and 10, Paul uses key words. Write down those key words. He uses the words knowledge. What's another word he uses? This is more a study through scripture. Sorry that I'm not getting water and doing demonstrations for you today. But we have knowledge. Number one, knowledge. Number two, wisdom. Another word that he uses, knowledge, wisdom. Number three. Then you, some of you ask, why do you pray that with your children every day? Because Paul is telling the church this every day. Lord, give us wisdom. Lord, give us knowledge. Lord, give us understanding for each day. And Paul uses these three words. He knows Proverbs. He knows that Proverbs says that the beginning of all these things is the fear of the Lord. So these words that Paul uses, he uses them on purpose because these were words that the Gnostics used to love. They love to use them. They love to use the word knowledge. You want to know why? Because the word Gnostic means knowledge. So they use the word knowledge. Come and get, gain more knowledge. If you ever had a Christian come alongside you, and they're just driving you 
away from where you're at so that you could gain more knowledge. Really ask the right questions to see what they're talking about. They believe that they tapped, these Gnostics, that they've tapped into a deeper knowledge, a certain wisdom and understanding that maybe others in the camp don't have. If you ever enter Gnosticism, if you ever become a Gnostic, you too, you too can have this wisdom. You too could have this knowledge. You can also have this understanding. So Paul is using these terms intentionally, words taken from Christianity, and the Gnostics have used it now to reapply to their weird beliefs. Don't you twist it. How many of you know that the enemy loves to grab what God forms and twist it for his evil? I mean, can we just give examples today of things like that? I want you to notice something. Skip Isaac says this. Notice something about Satan. He says this. Satan loves to use Christian vocabulary. The problem is he doesn't consult the Christian dictionary. He uses words that we use. But he means something totally different from those words. So when someone says to you, hey, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God. You've ever seen the Grammys? They come up here, I give... I give thanks to the man upstairs. I give thanks to my God. I first got to give praise to my maker. They say those things to start off their speeches, many of them. Maybe you speak to someone and they tell you, I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, I'm a Christian. Sometimes when you engage a cult, a cult is someone who's in a cult, a worldly person, they too will use phrases like this. I mean, they're living sinful lives. They're fulfilling the pleasures of their flesh. But you ask them, what are you? Like, oh, I'm a Christian. I love God. I even do my devotional every morning. But their lifestyle is one that pleases their flesh. Ever been there? So what do we do when these people that say such phrases, we stop them. And we ask them with love, with the grace of God. What do you mean by those phrases? What do you mean by that? Because some people will use the same vocabulary, but they'll have a whole different dictionary to what that means for them. I want you to understand this. Hey, you have all the wisdom. You have all the knowledge. Well, I don't need all the wisdom. Listen to this. And I don't need all the knowledge. You know what I love? I love when I get along other scholarly people. I'm not as smart as them. I'm not as knowledgeable as them. And for me, sometimes it could be discouraging. But other times when I drive away from that, I'm happy. Because then I really recognize, oh my God, it is the hand of God that is over my life. Because I don't know as much as they know. I don't understand as much as I understand. I can't grab everything that they're grabbing. They're, they're mind-blowing. And, and, and I just recognize, okay, good. And that's the Lord reminding me, good, because it's not you. I don't need all of that. In Jesus, we have all the wisdom, church. In Jesus, we have all the knowledge. In Jesus, we'll have all the understanding. In Jesus, church, we have everything. So the church of Colossae is running towards all these things. Oh my God, maybe I should do ceremonial things. Oh my God, maybe I should believe in the mystical stuff. Oh my God, maybe I should. And Paul's like, shh. Jesus versus everything in your life. Jesus, let him have rule. Let him have control. Stop focusing on everything and everyone and everything that's infiltrating you. And focus. Stop swerving. Grow in the main thing. Listen to Epaphras. Keep growing in the church. Jesus over everything. And that's what Paul's doing to Colossae. 
And that's what Regal's doing to the nest. Jesus versus everything. That's what we're called into. In Jesus, we have everything. Verses 11 through 14, because we're going to wrap it up soon. That's the first exit. Here we go. He says this. We also pray. Paul's full of prayer for them. We also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power. How many of you want God's power? I do. Can I be very transparent with you? Not only do I want God's power, listen to me. I need God's power. Why do you say that? Because I'm darn weak. Catch me on a weak day. Catch me on a weak moment. You might hear things that your ears do not want to hear. You might see things that your eyes do not want to see. Oh my, don't start thinking about transferring to another church just because I'm saying all these things. Catch me on a weak moment. I am sure that I'm not the only one in here that's weak. That is in dire need and want of God's power. God, I got some people in agreement. He says, be strengthened with all of his glorious power. Look, why? Why? Why should I be strengthened? So that you will have all the endurance and patience you need. You know what? I don't want to start this race, church. I want to finish this race as well. And to finish this race, guess what I need? I, need, I, don't, need I, just, I, I don't need just the right shoes. I also need the right ethic in me. I need to endure. I need to last. Come on, how many people have walked in and walked out? But us, we've walked in and we're gonna stay in the faith. We're going to stay in the faith forever. This is who we're called to. It's endurance. It's endurance. These people, man, they go and they follow fables and they follow intellect and they follow more scholarly people. Let's see where it takes you. You have to still be rooted. You have to still grow in wisdom. You still have to be rooted in power. Like, like stop going everywhere. Where are you in Christ? Look what he says here. It's so beautiful. That you will have to endure, for you have, so you can have endurance and patience that you would need. May you be filled with joy. Always thanking the Father. Look what he says. He has enabled you to, to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people. Who live in light. Verse 13. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. To the kingdom of light who's purchased our freedom and he's forgiven us of our sin. So this is a reminder from Paul to all the believers during his time and to all the believers in Colossae who are living under Roman rule. Listen to this, where there is pagan practice is at large, where there are many gods in which are being worshipped and the church is just trying to do the best that they can, kind of like us in 2022. We're just trying to do the best that we can and as the church is trying to do the best that they can in a world full of pagan practice, in a world full of false worship to false gods, there's also some influential people that get into the church and they begin to bug truthful believers and Paul is reminding them he tells them your strength is not found in any man or in any of their practices 
Your strength is not found in any of their ideologies, in their false worship. His desire for them is that the very power of God would be at work in them. And Paul tells them that they will endure if it's only in his power. He reminds them of the work of Christ on their behalf, that they have been qualified. That's a very tricky word, qualified. Because the moment that I say qualified, you feel like you need to qualify. You feel like there's something that comes out of you to qualify. But that word qualify, if you really define it in its proper text, it's not because what you could do on your own. In other words, that word qualify, it actually means you've been authorized through Christ. So now you could share in his promises in the inheritance with other brothers and sisters. You know what? I'm going to say something very boldly today. Ready? I've been qualified. Regardless of what you've ever said about me, I've been qualified. You want to know why? I have authority in Christ Jesus, and there is where my qualification is at. So say whatever you want. Keep bugging me to the day that I die. But those bugs will have to come off because at the end, when I face God face to face, I believe this with all of my heart. He will look at me and say, well done, good and faithful servant. I've been qualified because I've been authorized in Jesus. That's who you are. That's who we are. That's who the body is. We share in the promises, in the inheritance. They've been rescued is what Paul reminds them. Not just qualified, not just authorized, but you've also been rescued. Let's use the right word. You've been redeemed. You've been redeemed and because, they, because you've been redeemed, you've been transferred over. You've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ, the kingdom of light. Do you know how happy I am that I know that when I die, I no longer have to fear going to hell? But are you sure? Of course I'm sure I'm not going to hell. I've been transferred into the kingdom of his son, into the kingdom of light, and that's what Paul's reminding them of. Why are you chasing angels? Read the scriptures. You'll be greater than angels. You've been transferred into the kingdom of light. He reminds them that through the blood of Christ, that they have been purchased that they have been received. Uh, there's also been a reception of forgiveness. You've been purchased and you've also received forgiveness. Now is where the team could start get, getting ready and making their way. And, he, and he, you see that these first 14 verses deals a lot with intercession. He's interceding for the church that he's writing to. And I'm not going to be able to get into this today, but you need to come back. Because the second thing that he does is, after I've shown you how much I love you and pray for you and pray for you always, number two, I need to also give you now doctrinal information. I can't just tell you I love you, I love you, I love you, but I love you so much I need to teach over the lies that have been given to you. So he starts off in verse 15 all the way to verse 20. And Paul gives doctrinal information there and I want to say this to you, for those that are really going to enjoy themselves with us through this study of Colossians. I want you to know this. Verses 15 through 20, as we read this real quick, and then we wrap this up. I'm not lying to you. When we read this, I want you to highlight verses 15 to 20, circle it, put a star next to it. Because really, verses 15 through 20, 
It truly is the central part of chapter one, and I'll take it further than that. Not only is it the central part of it, but it's really the theme of the whole book. It's the theme of the whole epistle. It's, it's the importance of the whole book of Colossians. If you really get into it, Paul writes it, and it's like a hymn. It's, a, it's more poetic than anything. It's as if he's writing a poem to God's church. And as he writes this poem, he says this, because I'm coming to the end, and I need to leave you hanging like a good movie does so you could come back and listen to part two. He's taking Jesus and he's exalting Jesus to his proper place. Who he is is what he's gonna teach on. He's gonna teach that Jesus is God and not only just leave him there, after describing that Jesus is God, he's also gonna exalt him as God. I'm not gonna just tell you that Jesus is God, but I'm also gonna write to you and exalt him as God. Why, why would Paul do this in verses 15 through 20? He's doing this because he needs to confront the heresy that has infiltrated the church. He's gotta defend, listen to this. He's got to defend the deity of Jesus Christ. He's got to defend the place of Jesus and say, if I'm still on this earth, then I'm gonna be a voice that defends the truth of Jesus. What does that mean to you? Come on, what does that mean to you? You know what, you know, Rudy, I think, sent me something last night. I haven't even talked to him about it. In Finland, they're arresting a pastor and they arrested, a, uh, or they're thinking about arresting someone that sits in the Senate seat or something like that. All because of, the, of, the, of a movement in Finland, uh, all, the, all the pastor did was quote a scripture, a verse. He, he, he quoted a scripture about um, sexual identity or something like that. And the law of Finland told them something about you could, you could say, what, what, I wish you could come out of that booth and tell me what it says, but you could say what the scripture says, but you can't say that this is truth. And they arrested that pastor all because he tweeted a verse and took that verse as truth in his life. The person that was speaking in the video says, Americans, I hope you know that this is coming to a theater near you. This is why we're studying through the book of Colossians. Because things are gonna come and bug the truth. But that is when the light is to shine its brightest. And that is when the truth of who Christ is is to be proclaimed more than it ever has. We have to confront and keep Jesus in his place. Who cares what the world says, amen? All right, let's read it so we could go, I guess. I don't want to leave, though. I want to stay here forever. Here it is. Verse 15, next time together, we'll dissect it. Today, we're just going to read it. Christ, look what he says. Bless you, Christ. That's that famous sneeze. We love him. Christ is the visible image. Everyone say image. Image. We're gonna, all right, I promise you this. 
We'll end with verse 15, but let me finish. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. You think Paul's trying to make a point? For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see. Do you see how he's coming against Gnostic mysticism? Do you see how he's coming against all the beliefs that are bugging the church? He made the things that we can see. Don't tell me that another being from another being from another being made the heavens and the earth and everything in between. He made everything from the heavens to the earth. Paul is going right to it. Such as thrones and kingdoms and rulers, authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. Don't, don't tell me his deity comes and goes and he's just a human being. What is Paul doing? He's correcting the Colossian heresy. And he says this, he's not just a human being that deity falls on. He is deity. He is God in the flesh. Look what he says. Come on, man. This stuff excites me. It says he existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. It doesn't leave him. He's not just, you know that there's a, that belief that he's just a, he was a thought before time in God's mind and he came to existence and he's no more. And now he continues in the thought of God the Father. No, it's not. I'm about to say something I shouldn't say on the altar. Get banned from preaching it forever. But no, it's not. He's not just a thought in the mind of the Father. He's a reality, visible image of the invisible God. That's who he is. He was there before everything was. He's there as everything is. And he will be there forever as everything will continue to be. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord, the deity himself of God. That's who he is. I'm not done, Paul says. He says, Christ, he's also the head of the church. Thank God. Because if I was, this church would have not have lasted. Which is the body. He is the beginning. He is supreme. He's talking all about the supremacy of Christ. Don't deny his supremacy. Don't combat his supremacy. He is supreme over all who rise from the dead and he is the first in everything. He is the firstborn. He has preeminence is what he's saying. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything back to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Imagine reading that into the church of Colossae. He is confronting some things. I wish I had time to preach all those verses right now. But I'll stop at verse 15. Let's rewind. And we'll start where we're going to start next time we get together. Verse 15, put it back on the screen. It says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. I want you to circle that word image. That word image in the Greek is icon. Icon. And that word icon is where we get the word icon. And that word icon means the copy. 
the exact representation, likeness, the manifestation of God himself. So Jesus is the exact likeness, manifestation, revelation who God is. So this is meant to explain that Jesus is not merely similar to the Father, having similar appearance to the Father. Come on, what does, what does Jesus tell Philip? Can we see the Father? Let us see the Father. Let us know the Father. Come on, church, tell me you know that scripture. Jesus looks at his disciple and he says, can I see the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen him. I am the icon of the Father. I am the visible manifestation, the visible revelation. I am it of the invisible God. I am the Father revealed right before you. Can I see the Father? If you've heard me, you've heard him. If you've seen me, you've seen him. I'm not like his appearance. I am his appearance. So Paul chooses a word to prove that that Jesus is God. Just as God the Father is God. So Jesus is also the very stamp of God the Father. One theologian writes this, God is invisible which does not merely mean that he cannot be seen by our bodily eye, but that he is unknowable. In the exalted Christ, the unknowable God becomes known. We're gonna stop on this verse because this is going to be very important, if not the most important of all that is said and written in this book. It's verses 15 through 20, the most important. You know why? Because it's focusing solely on Jesus. It's pinpointing who Jesus is. Jesus, Jesus. And because of that, everything that is written in Colossians 15 through 20 is the most important. And our next time, we'll spend time and we'll put Christ where he belongs. As Paul does, we'll exalt him to his proper place. But as I end... I want to end and I want you to think about everything that we've covered so far. It's a lot of information. It's a lot of stuff and I've left out so much. But I want you to think of what the Lord is already teaching. I want you to think about what the Lord is speaking to you right now, even personally in your life. Is God, listen to this, is God whom you feel is, can be so unknown? You've ever been there? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. He feels like he could be so unknown at times. My question is, is he drawing near to you, showing you that in Christ, this is who I am? Can you see the place that Christ wants to have in your life? So far from everything that we've spoken, Can you see what Christ wants to do, what Christ wants to speak, who Christ wants to be in your life? That in you is alive the icon. That in you is alive the icon. 
the exact representation, the likeness, the manifestation of God. It's living inside of you. If you can only come to believe that. So that now, because the icon is alive in you, you live on this earth for one main purpose only. Here it is. I don't know what God's will in my life is. I'm going to give it to you right now. You don't even have to schedule a meeting. You don't have to spend money on a therapist or a counselor. I know the exact purpose for your life. It's that you could be on this earth, the icon of God. That's it. That's your purpose. What does that entail then? No, no, no. You just now you're asking for what platform you'll stand on. That's different. But let the perfect will of God as you become that icon, the exact representation. As God is alive in you, so that you can now be the same here on earth. I want you to think of that. That you would be the icon on earth to reveal God to this broken world. So I leave you with the theme, with the title of our messages. What does Jesus versus everything in your life look like? You need to answer that right now. Because I asked this question right after that one. Who's winning those battles? Is it everything or is it Jesus? Come on, Jesus versus everything. Oh, but we have to, we have to give a little, we need to be a little with the, no, it's Jesus versus everything. You are the icon, the exact representation. It lives in you, he lives in you, and you live in this earth. So win the battle, win the battle. We started the year with win the battle within, win the battle. Win the battle. Why win the battle? You win the battle because now you've been called to fight the battle. Win the battle, Jesus versus everything because there's a battle. And I will be the first to tell you if the day comes where the movie plays in our theater, I hope and pray and I believe this, that many of us will be in prison together if that's what it takes. But we will not deny the true icon, the true icon that lives in us. And we're going to hold the icon up so that the world could see that it's Jesus Christ, the truth in a false world, the truth in a false system. The world has crumbled, but the truth has stayed secure. And the icon's name is none other than Jesus Christ, our Lord. Put me in chains. Put me in bars. But the voice will continue to declare that Jesus is alive yesterday, today, and forevermore. Come and pray with me. If you could stand with me this morning. Lord, we thank you. And Lord, we love you. And we just want to enter into a moment of just worship right now. But as we enter into this place of worship, I pray as we kick off the series in Colossians, that Lord, right now you begin to do a work in our hearts and our lives. I pray for every single brother, every single sister that's here. 
I know you've spoken to their hearts. I know you've called them for such a time. I know moments of difficulty are coming. But in the moments of difficulty, because of the icon lives in us, that is the truth of the best is yet to come. The world would get darker, but the best to come alive inside of me is at hand. The icon has resurrected in me. And now I become that to the world so that many would come to the feet of Jesus. I pray all across this room that Jesus versus everything, that Jesus would have victory over all things. And that we would give you in the weeks to come your place. That we would give you your honor. And that we would be transformed just like Epaphras was. And that we would take it to our villages. That we would take it to our homes, to our communities. The truth of God's word. The truth who Christ is. So Lord, we give you, before we get into some announcements, we want to give you a moment of worship. And if you're here today, I want you to surrender your life today. And just enter into this moment of praise and just give it to him and say, Lord, have everything because you need to have your proper place in me. You're the icon. Maybe you didn't come up earlier and you need prayer. We ask you, if you want prayer, come up to the front. We'll pray with you before we go. Before we do announcements, we'll lay hands, we'll come alongside you, we'll hug you, and we'll pray with you. So the altar is open if you need it, just to come and pray with you. But let's enter into a moment of worship before we close off here today. And let's put Christ in his proper place, that he would be glorified. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. You're so worthy. Come on, worship him, church.